Let me invite you now to open your Bibles to the book of Hosea. Today we will be looking at chapter 6, verse 11b, to the end of chapter 7, which would be verse 16. One of the things that I, I think I've mentioned before, and you probably already know, is that the original manuscripts do not have chapter divisions, nor verses. And so somebody came along and added them. And sometimes they did really well, and sometimes they didn't. And today's one they didn't do so well on. So that's why we're breaking up the last half of verse 11 and including it with chapter 7. Hear now the word of the Lord as we read from the book of Hosea. When I restore the fortunes of my people, when I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed, and the evil deeds of Samaria, for they deal falsely. The thief breaks in, and the bandits raid outside, but they do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them. They are before my face. By their evil they make the king glad, and the princes by their treachery. They are all adulterers. They're like a heated oven, whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. On the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with mockers. For with hearts like an, open, uh, like an oven, they approach their intrigue. All night their anger smolders, and in the morning it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are hot as an oven, and they devour their rulers, and their kings have fallen, and none of them calls upon me. Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. The pride of Israel testifies to his face, yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. As they go, I will spread over them my net. I will bring them down like the birds of heaven. I will discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their own beds. For grain and wine, they gash themselves. They rebel against me. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not upward. They're like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. They, this shall be their derision in the land of of Egypt. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we pray today that you would give us insight and understanding 
to this word that the prophet so boldly spoke to your people. And Lord, we pray that as we um, expose our hearts to this teaching, that it would create in us the same thing that you were instructing your people to do even then. And that is seek your face. That is return to you. That is constantly coming back to you. That is having a lifestyle of repentance. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now this text is unusual in several respects, as is the whole book of Hosea. It, it doesn't really fit the frame. It doesn't really, uh, it sort of breaks the mold for uh, every other kind of um, genre in Holy Scripture. But here we have a picture of Yahweh actually in a covenant lawsuit. He's showing himself as a witness here. He's describing what he sees. And Yahweh expresses his bitter disappointment with Israel by four laments that together comprise a single lengthy personal lament of accusation against Israel. Usually when we use the term lament and we read the book of Lamentations, it is people lamenting against God, voicing their grief and their brokenness and their agony and their pain and their suffering to God. But in this passage, we have that reversed. God is voicing his grief with his people's refusal to return to him with his people's love for evil and sin, and clearly loving evil and sin far more than they do him. him. And their lust for power and pleasure and comfort and approval and every other thing you could think of has far surpassed any heart's desire to come home. But behind this lament is the tragic fact of Israel's conduct in its final years, both in the domestic arena, which he talks about in verses 3 through 7, and in the foreign arena, verses 8 to 11, Israel's successive leaders had scrambled to secure their power, driven by a lust for success, they neglected the one thing that would have really secured for them what they were so hungry for. What would have really secured peace and blessing and hope would be to return to Yahweh and to live in obedience to his covenant. But they consistently, the only thing they were consistent about was ignoring opportunities to return to him and instead showed themselves through reprobate, hot-headed, weak, proud, gullible, rebellious, and misled behavior that they deserved destruction, that they deserved captivity, and that they were going to receive according to the covenant curses found in Leviticus 26 and the book of Deuteronomy chapters 28 to 32. And so the essence of God's complaint here is the rebellion of his people. He says, not one of them calls to me, not one. They will not return. They will not seek me. They have fled from me. They have rebelled against me. They are stubborn. They have plotted evil against me. 
And so here we see something unique in redemptive history where God offers his complaint toward his people. And so the chapter begins in the latter part of verse 6 and the early part of chapter 7 verse 1. There is God's description of his desire to restore his people. He says, I long to restore you. I long to restore your fortunes. This terminology is exactly the terminology used when the people, after going into exile, were released from captivity and returned back to the land, and God promised to restore their fortunes, which meant everything you're longing for, everything you're searching for, everything your heart wants is here, and it's me. And that's what you want. That's what you need. That's who you need to hope in. That's where you need to find life. And it's here, if you would but come. Return. Repent. Turn around. Come to me. Now, this command for repentance is very interesting, especially in the Bible. And I mentioned earlier that an unbeliever cannot repent and Christians who are genuine Christians repent constantly. And so one of the most powerful things that we see in the Word of God is, is the idea of repentance found in Scripture is, is a miracle. And it's more like a paradigm shift. It's more like uh, moving from, let's say, a geocentric worldview and paradigm to a heliocentric worldview. In other words, it's a Copernican revolution where we move from seeing life focused and centered upon one thing to seeing life focused and centered upon another. And so the word repentance means to change your paradigm, to change your grid, to change the way you think and reason and live and perceive things and sense things and to return back to the Lord. But it's a miracle anybody, anywhere, ever repents because we're loath to do so. We're fallen. We're dead in trespasses and sins. We are bound by Satan as unbelievers. There is no spiritual pulse. There are no spiritual desires for God. There is no, nothing within us that wants to go back to him. Until the miracle of grace happens when God literally raises us spiritually from the dead. Literally spiritually. That's the one you have to think about. Spiritually raises you from the dead. Gives you new life. Gives you a new heart. And your will is changed and transformed by God's power through regeneration. And you return to the Father. But it isn't just once. It is a life of perpetual, continual turning and returning to him. That's how we change. That's how we grow. And so this is what God longs for his people to experience is the joy of repentance. You know, we have this confession of sin in our bulletin, and I've had so many people tell me, I don't really like that, Pastor Tim. That's a downer for me. I don't want to come and hear about how wretched and sinful I am. And I don't like that, and I wish you'd leave that out. And what I want to say to those people, and what I have said to those people over and over again is, you are, you are short-circuiting the route to true joy. The route to true joy is not ignoring your sinfulness. The route to true joy is having it uncovered and running to Christ. 
That's where joy is. And, and you'll worship a whole lot better if you do that. You'll find a sweet release. You'll find sweet freedom. God exposes our sin just like he exposes the evil of his people in chapter 7. Not to condemn us but to get us to change our way of thinking and through the power of His Spirit, lead us back home to Himself. But the wonderful truth of the gospel is that as we do that over and over, He changes us, He transforms us from glory unto glory. Now, in this time of Hosea's ministry, um, God reiterates his willingness to restore and to heal. These verses suggest that any responses to Hosea's invitation to repent were short-lived. The people appear to respond positively, and they seem to invite God to come and heal them. So God sets out to heal them, but in fact, when he turns up, he finds violence instead of repentance. The people think their sins are a light matter that can readily be forgotten because they are of little significance or import to them. But God remembers. God knows that our sins are always before him. And instead of condemning evil, we see in this text, the political leaders delight in it. They participate in it. There's a real sense of complicity in these verses. The priests are involved in banditry. We saw that last week. While the kings celebrate and take delight in evil. And even when they get into trouble over and over again, they never call upon God. Both God's people and their kings are like an overheated oven. Their passion for evil smolders without needing stoking. They are, as it were, on fire for sin, not God. And as a result, they are consumed by their own sin. Sin feeds sin. Giving in to temptation fuels further temptation as we experience the true but temporary pleasures of sin. The fire of sin burns stronger in our hearts until eventually it consumes us. And God's compassionate heart reaches out. He extends his hand. He extends his arms to welcome us home from our self-destructive ways left to ourselves. We will destroy ourselves every single time, every single time. And so God's compassion is writ large in this text, but the people are consumed by it. Take a look at your own life. Are there patterns of sin in your life? Can you see ways in which succumbing to temptation has fueled further temptation in your life? I would encourage you this morning to turn to God at this moment in repentance. He says, I will restore the fortunes of my people. I would heal Israel. And so the focus of Hosea was Israel's internal politics and plotting. And the focus of a Hosea in chapter 7 verses 8 through 16 is in her foreign policy. 
Israel is guilty of spiritual infidelity. And here he speaks more of their political infidelity. God had promised to protect and provide for his people from the exodus onwards. He had an amazing track record of delivering them against the odds over and over. But now Ephraim, another name for Israel, mixes with the nations. The people turn to Egypt and then to Assyria for help. They don't turn to God. Even though he longs, he longs, as it were, to redeem them. And in chapter 7, verses 8 through 16, Hosea begins to pile up images that he uses in his anatomy of human infidelity that comes at us rich and fast. He tells us in chapter 7, verse 8, that Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim is a cake not turned. A cake that is not turned over will be burnt on one side and remain uncooked on the other. Uh, when I was first married, I was always on some kind of diet of some kind, trying to cheat, overeating. And uh, I decided to make a, um, uh, out of cottage cheese, a cheesecake. And I thought, well, that sounds like a good idea. It's not going to be my, you know, I can do this. Any idiot can read things and do it. So I go get a pan, and I get this cheese, cottage cheese, and I spread it out, and I do whatever the instructions said. But I forgot one central ingredient. What was it? Sweet and low. Let me tell you something. Artificial sugar does not make it sweet if you just spread it across the top. It needs to be stirred in. So I, th I was just taking the packets and sprinkling it on the top, shoved it in the oven. It was like eating a sponge with a little sweet taste at the beginning. But it was the worst thing I ever had in my life. I said, well, I guess I'll just be fat. I ain't going to do this any longer. <laughs> and so he points out that these people are like a cake that is <laughs> not done. Burnt on one side, raw on the other, uncooked. It's, it's neither one thing nor the other. In the same way, Israel has not yet become a total pagan nation, but neither is it a holy nation. It's like the church at Laodicea to whom our risen, the risen Christ says, I know your works. You are neither cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, neither cold or hot, I will spew you. I will spit you out of my mouth. Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples and is so unfit for the very purpose God intended his people to fulfill. The purpose of displaying his goodness to the nations. You see, God chose Israel. He selected Israel to be a light to the nations. They were to be the mediator of his covenant for the world. And they failed miserably at it. But the goal of Israel was always to be a display of the goodness of God towards sinners. A city set on a hill where people would be drawn and attracted by Yahweh, this God, who is a God like you, we read earlier today out of the book of Micah, who, who forgives who shows tender mercy. There's no God like that. And Israel was to put that on display. Ephraim is a synonym for Israel. Remember that. But Israel mixes with, Israel becomes more like the nations and less like the light to the nations. 
Israel failed to be the mediator of the covenant. And so God had to send the one true Israel, the one true Israelite, the one true people of God, his son, to redeem us and become a light to the nations and to mediate his covenant of grace to his people. They were to be holy as God is holy. But if Israel did not fulfill that responsibility and mix with the nations, then it could no longer perform this role. The one time in Israel's history where it seemed to be a reality was when Solomon, as king, and all of his glory and the temple was built, and the nations streamed to Israel to see the glory of the kingdom. The queen of Sheba comes to, to ask of and inquire into the glory of the nations. But it was lost before it ever started almost. And it's the same thing in the church today. It's tempting to think we should become like the world to reach the world. That we should become like, you know, we need to be cool as Christians. Well, let me tell you something. You need to give up on that. And I need to give up on that. Because if we really believe what the Bible teaches, then we won't believe in swagger and coolness and attractiveness the same way the world does. We're a counterculture. We have a different set of values. We're weak. We're not strong. We're poor. We're not rich. We're naked. We're not clothed. We're guilty. We're not uh, pure. Now, clearly there is a desire to connect with our context. Paul says, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might what? Be cool? No. Save some. Why should we avoid unnecessary barriers to the gospel? And that's what we need to do. We need to remove the barriers we put in place. But the more we become like the world around us, the less we really have to offer anyone. It is our distinctiveness that will attract people, even if it repels some, and it will certainly repel some. The hope of the world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We adapt so that that gospel can be seen and heard, but we refuse to compromise so that it is the gospel that is heard and not some poor echo of our culture. Paul continues, I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them its blessings. What drives him is the gospel, not his desire to be trendy or fit in. There's nothing cool about it. There's nothing cool about denying yourself and dying to yourself. That just ain't cool. There's nothing cool about carrying your cross daily. But he goes on. and says another thing about his people. He said, you people, in verses 9 and 10, are like a deluded old man. Strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. The pride of Israel testifies to his face, yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. I think what Hosea is trying to get us to do is imagine, uh, obviously, an aging man who still acts like a teenager. You ever seen that? You know, uh, Jerry Seinfeld once said this in a comedy routine, and I agree with it. He talks about men's hairstyles, and he says, you know, as men grow up and they hit, they hit their sweet spot and they get them a hairstyle that really looks good, 
And you want to perpetuate that hairstyle as long as you can get away with it. But what if your hair starts thinning out? What if other things happen? Then you just can't maintain that hairstyle anymore. Last time my wife sat down and gave me a haircut, she said, you can't wear it like that anymore. It's too thin. I said, are you telling me I'm a deluded, silly old man? She said, if the shoe fits, wear it. Have you ever seen an old man trying to do something young men do so naturally and they just can't quite do it? You still got it in your mind. But your muscle memory has gone somewhere else. And you just can't dance like you used to. You just can't run. I see it at the gym every day. I see it at the gym. These men coming in and, 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 and they've got like hair dye. And their hair is jet black. And uh, it's pathetic in ways, and I don't mean to be—I <laughs> don't mean to be crude, but it's crude to look at. But I don't mean to be crude, and I don't mean to be mean-spirited. But at some point, you just got to give it up. At some point, you got to accept it. But here, Hosea is saying, "Look, you don't even know. You're not getting it." My daughters, uh, when they were teenagers, often uh, let me know how out of touch with current trends I was. But I point out that there's something wrong, worse than an unfashionable middle-aged man, and that is a middle-aged man who's trying to be fashionable. <laughs> Israel is like a man who cannot grow old gracefully, or like an old man who still attempts the exploits of his youth that he can no longer achieve. Back in the days of David and Solomon, Israel was a major power, but now it's lost its power. And it's overreaching. And Hosea was ministering at a time when Israel had done a very long period of prosperity. But those days are rapidly coming to an end and she will not recognize it. She will not face reality and more importantly, she will not return to the Lord. Who is the source of her former power and prestige. And then... God compares Ephraim to a senseless bird. Ephraim is like a dove, silly without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. As they go, I spread the net over them, or over them my net. I will bring them down like the birds of heavens. I will discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them. But they speak lies against me. Israel is like a silly dove flitting about here and there, but never settling, never committing. Sometimes Israel tried to form an alliance with Egypt. Sometimes it bought off Assyria with tribute. All the time she ignored her fundamental problem, her spiritual adultery. So God will catch them in his net of judgment as they go has the sense of whichever way they go, in other words, it doesn't matter whether they go to Egypt down south or Assyria up north. Either way they go, they're going to end up in the net of God's judgment because God is the one with whom they have to do. Do you ever get caught up in looking at providence or looking at what happens to you? And you start, you know, it's just natural for us to want to assign blame to somebody. And so we start looking around at providence. And I do that, I do that, and I start trying to figure out, well, what happened here? 
you know, who can I blame so I can feel better? Because, you know, it really feels bad for me to absorb all the responsibility of this mess. And so you start looking around, and I always end up at the same place. It's God who is sovereign. Nobody else is. It is God who ordains all that comes to pass. It is God who provides everything that is necessary and something that isn't necessary, he withholds. Maybe like that. I, I think I got that wrong. But the point I'm trying to communicate to you, it is God with whom we have to do. But our knee-jerk response, our, our reflex, is always to turn one direction or the other to seek security. It is not difficult to find relevance for this image today. Idolatrous desires, insecurities can control us so much that we flit about from one thing to the other seeking fulfillment. Some of us are on the fast track to nowhere. It might be somebody pursuing the latest trend. It might be somebody jumping from one lover to another. It might be somebody switching their money from one investment to another. We seek fulfillment and security in things other than God, and we never find them there. So we move from one thing to another like a senseless dove. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace of God that could be theirs. When we do not center our life upon the gospel of Jesus Christ and the wonderful liberating truth of that, there is a vacuum in our soul and we will try to fill it with everything else. And when I hear preachers preach and I go to churches that do not have the gospel as central to the heart and core of who they are, they're still trying to fill up that hole with something else. Some theological project, some other project. Because when you do not have that vacuum filled with Jesus and Him only, you're always trying to find anything you can to fill the hole in the soul. But St. Augustine prayed his famous prayer, Thou hast made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And as we get a glimpse of God's heartbreak over his people. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. He says they're like a self-preoccupied prayer. Notice that he says, they do not cry to me from their heart. They wail upon their beds um, for grain and wine. They gash themselves. They rebel against me. Now, what is this? Well, you remember in 1 Kings chapter 18, there's a prophet named Elijah, and there was this contest, as it were, between uh, Yahweh and Baal, and the prophets of Yahweh, and the one prophet of Israel, Elijah. And that Elijah, they built an altar and they stacked the wood, and then the, the prophets of Baal began to do what? Wail and cut themselves and gash themselves. Look it up. That's what they did. And so that's what he's talking about here. Your idolatries, your turning to these false fertility gods who are going to make your life richer. You're going to have the fine life of the best grain, the best wine. You're going to enjoy life on top. You're going to be the elite. You're going to taste and see that the life you live is good. 
but you're like those who worship Baal. You know, they were suffering a drought. So the most amazing thing to me is Isaiah takes water and pours it all over the sacrifice of the wood. And then he calls down fire from heaven and God consumes the sacrifice and the altar. Over and over again, God is showing his people. You go through these motions, you, you, you have syncretized your relationship with me and you're crying out to the wrong gods. You don't cry to me from your heart. You haven't stopped praying, you haven't stopped gathering for worship, but you're not really worshiping me. Instead, you're just wailing in self-pity. You're bemoaning your lot. You're crying out, but you're not crying out to me, and you're not crying out from your heart. Instead, you're only interested in the wine I might give you. You know, it was the same in Jesus' day. The crowds in John John chapter 6 come after Jesus because they wanted him to provide bread. He had just done uh, the miracle, and they wanted him to provide bread for them, but he himself is the bread. He is the bread of life. God gives us many blessings in the gospel, but at the heart of the gospel is God himself. What we get is God himself. And if our interest is just in his stuff, then God will wean us from our misplaced affections. He wants our undivided loyalty. He is worthy of our undivided affection. And so the people's prayer life is frequent. It's fervent. (laughs) You know, people used to tell me when I was a little kid, you can go to hell for lying. This passage tells me you can go to hell for praying if you're praying the wrong way and to the wrong God and crying out. The people's prayer life was frequent, it was fervent, they wailed upon their beds, they gashed themselves, but frequent and fervent prayer isn't necessarily a sign of spiritual health. It can be a sign of faithlessness. Jesus said, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for the Father knows what you need even before you ask Him. Pagan people think they can manipulate God. They think they need to manipulate Him. They pray as if they need to wear Him down until He finally concedes and gives them what they really want, which isn't Him. And then finally, He tells His people they're like a faulty bow. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They return but not upward. They are like what? A treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. You know, God had consistently protected his people. And when they turned to him for help, he would equip them for battle. They were trained by God, but now they use their skill against him. They do return, but not to him, not upwards. They're like a faulty bow. They're like what I used to call a fairground rifle. (laughs) When I was a kid, we'd have a county fair, and you go shoot a rifle to try to win some stupid teddy bear or something. I don't know. It wasn't worth $2. And you're spending 20 
And, and you pick up the rifle, and you know you got a bead on it. You shoot it, and it bangs way over here. you got a faulty rifle. Somebody bent the sights until some guy figures it out, and he comes down and bends the sights. Bing, 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 bing. All of a sudden, the uh, tarp would fall down and close the place because the guy figured it out. Did any of you ever go to carnivals like this? Am I that old? Mid-South Fair, shooting for the Cupid dolls or whatever they were. And he said, that's what my people are like. They're like a fairground rifle. You point it at the target, but it always veers off course. He says, my people make a show of repentance, but they don't redirect their lives. They don't come to me. They're like a faulty bow full of energy. They fire off towards God, but then they bend away from him and miss the target. And that is what our humanity is like. You point us in God's direction, you say, this is your God, this is your help in a time of trouble, this is your protection, your joy, your security, your life, your salvation. And we head off toward him, but soon we're veering in a different direction. That's why we repent all the time. That's what we're like. You point us in God's direction. You give us the promises of the gospel, but soon we veer off. And that's what we're like. That's what it feels like when we meet with the Christian community. I'm pointed again in the right direction. There in front of me is God, my true hope, my joy, my security, my satisfaction. But when I'm on my own, alone and cut off, the temptation to veer off in another direction is powerful. I look for joy. I look for affirmation elsewhere. I am a joy affirmation junkie. So I need people in my life who are sharing their lives with me. That is why the New Testament tells us in the book of Hebrews, encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. That's why we need to encourage one another with the love of God. Do you do that? When was the last time? When was the last time you spoke to another believer, brother or sister in Christ, who's part of your community, who you see veering off? When was the last time you did that? Because I can't get to them all. Can't do it. Would love to be able to know every one of you well enough to, if I see you veering off, put my arm around you and say, my dear brother, you're veering off. You're missing the point. You really, need to, you really need to return to Jesus. Do you do that? Do you see your responsibility as the church to do that? Hebrews tells us as a command that we're to do that. And that is why we need to encourage one another with the love of God. We need to speak of God's love to us in Christ so that our love remains constant. Only as we love God will we want to share our lives give generously, have people in our homes, do mission together, and consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Now, as I close, i got 15 more things to say. No. As I close... This message... It's perennial. 
God chastises us. He strengthens us. And yet we can find ourselves resisting Him, running from Him, turning away from Him, being ungrateful toward Him. And I am reminded as I read this text all week of the statement our Lord Jesus made in Matthew 23 when He said this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under his wings, and you were not, what, willing? You were not willing. This is the rejection of the outstretched hand of God and the refusal of his grace. In Hosea's case, what is striking is not the pronouncement of judgment, which we expect, but Yahweh's continuing desire to redeem his people. Yahweh maintained his outstretched hand. To redeem primarily refers to purchasing someone out of slavery, but was used more broadly for deliverance from oppression. The hands are extended to deliverance from sin. Yahweh remained eager to purchase them back, but they rejected his outstretched hand, which led to judgment. Their foolish and insolent tongues denying any need to worry with Yahweh. C.S. Lewis's ideas that the doors of hell are locked from the inside seems an apt summary of Israel's decision. I do not mean that the ghost may not wish to come out of hell in the vague fashion wherein an envious man wishes to be happy, but they certainly do not even will even the first preliminary stages of that self-abandonment through which alone the soul can reach any good. They enjoy forever their horrible freedom they have demanded and are therefore self-enslaved just as the blessed forever submitting to obedience become through all eternity more and more free. Is God speaking to you? Is he telling you, return to me? Seek my face. Put away your pride. Put away your arrogance. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you in due time. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for the book of Hosea. It is the kind of book that gets up in our business. It exposes us, and it shows us how much we need Jesus. And there's a lot of times we don't want to know how much we we need Jesus. We don't want to have to need him that much. But Lord, we thank you that you are faithful, that you are always approaching us with outstretched arms, saying, come to me. Lord, we pray that we would be given grace to do so today, that we would repent from the heart, that you would put a spirit of repentance in us, and cause us to find our heart's true home. Now, fathers, we continue to worship. May we give as those who have 
tasted your goodness. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.